Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of Credit Crunch, part of the Fick Focus podcast series where we focus on all things credit. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me is colleague Sam Geyer. Uh, before diving in, let me take a moment to extend our thanks to listeners whose support by listening, following, and sharing has helped us to keep bringing great guests, great content to you. You know, we couldn't do it without your continued support, so thank you. Uh, today on Credit Crunch, what's ahead for private credit? We talk growth, we talk competition and opportunity. We do that with Dan Peterzak. Dan is partner and global head of private credit for KKR. You may have heard of them. And he's also co-president CIO of FSKKR Capital Corp. Dan, appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. So let's maybe start with some basic blocking and tackling, uh, you know, in terms of the landscape. So there's a lot of commentary, certainly about the market uh, and it's how it's seen some really strong growth, certainly in the wake of the great financial crisis. The number that gets bandied around a lot is sort of that one and a half to 1.6 trillion number in terms of total assets. But private credit's a really big umbrella. So maybe could you just talk about market construction? What is that one and a half to 1.6 trillion breakdown in terms of strategy by region? And is there a sense in terms of what's deployed versus dry powder? Yeah, no, happy to. I, I think the one point you made in there is, is it's a pretty broad definition of what people do call private credit. <clears throat> I think from our side, you know, we're generally focused on sort of anything that is privately originated and privately negotiated, right? We actually break our business down into, into two components. Uh, one would be the corporate credit space, you know, where we might lend uh, first lien, Unitron, second lien, uh, or mezzanine. And, you know, the other large part would be uh, asset-based finance, so financing kind of that real-world economy. Uh, you know, think about mortgages, consumer loans, leasing, sort of, et cetera. You know, I, I think that's a an evolution. I think most people, when they came in our office to talk about private credit, you know, j even just a handful of years ago, they really meant direct lending only. But I think people are getting the joke that it's it's kind of much broader than that. So I think we're happy to see that. You know, we share that number in terms of market size, you know, the one five to one six trillion dollars in terms of total um, total market. You know, there's probably, you know, 500 billion of odd sort of dry powder, you know, available in the space. And I think that faces off versus, you know, private equity dry powder at about two and a half trillion dollars, right? So kind of ample room, I think, for this uh, market to continue to grow, to continue to provide capital, either to sponsor own companies or privately held companies. So maybe digging in specifically to KKR. So, I mean, your group is among the largest in the space. You touch many, if not all of the strategies. So how does the KKR portfolio break down today in terms of strategy types? You'd mentioned sort of asset base being a big one. And I know that's that's a focus for you guys. Yeah, I mean, so we've got, um, you know, over 125 dedicated investment professionals to our private credit effort. Uh, we've got, you know, another 20 in our portfolio monitoring unit. So a scaled team. You know, I think this is a space where size and scale really does matter. Um, in terms of, of AUM, you know, we've got about $83 billion attached to our private credit effort. Um, if you kind of break that down, <clears throat> you know, 
let's call it 40, 45% of that is, is in our corporate credit area that I spoke of. So think about direct lending, you know, think about second lien, think about sort of mezzanine, you know, the remainder of that, you know, we're, we're kind of 60 odd percent, you know, north of $45 billion is in our asset based finance business. Um, you know, I, I think both these things are important, right? You need the capital to control deals. You need the capital to, to actually be able to be selective, I think, in a market like this. But then you need the human capital, right? You need to be able to find deals, underwrite deals, but also kind of risk manage your portfolio thereafter, right? So I think both that size and scale on AUM and, and human capital is important. Yeah, and I definitely want to dig into some of that. But uh, maybe first, uh, you know, Walk me through. So you, I, I believe you sort of uh, came over in 2016. So what does the business look like now relative to when you joined? Where have you seen sort of the most growth? Uh, and, you know, just how has the market sort of transformed? Yeah, no, that's correct. I joined here in January 2016. Uh, I was at Deutsche Bank for the 10 years prior to that. Uh, you know, when I joined, it was a it was a smaller effort. I was about nine billion of AUM, about 20 people. Um and all of those people and, and all that AUM would have been in the in the corporate credit space, you know, mainly focused on direct lending. So obviously we've we've grown that part of the business, you know, meaningfully both in terms of of you know people and AUM, but the asset backspace was I think we'll call it the the more material build out there. You know, now 50 people kind of dedicated to that part of the business. You know, really starting de novo uh, in 2016. And I think beyond that has been some you know, growth outside the U.S., right? We always did have a, a dedicated footprint in Europe, but it was small. You know, it's grown meaningfully uh, since that time. And we've also now been building out kind of our effort in, in Asia. You know, I think we've got a little bit of an advantage there because the footprint of the firm. And I think the way we think about these private credit markets is, you know, Europe probably five to seven years behind where the U.S. was and still sort of catching up. And then Asia probably, you know, five to seven years sort of behind that. Right. So I think that's just the next kind of natural evolution of the growth of this business. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, uh, you know, how big the size of the private credit market has gotten here over the past decade or so. Uh, for, for you, what have you seen as like the main drivers of the interest in the asset class overall? Yeah, I look at it from both sides. Right. I, I think if you if you go back and I'm going to break this down between sort of direct lending and sort of the asset back business. But I, I think if you. You know, thought, you know, five or seven years ago, I think it was still, you know, not extremely common for people to have dedicated allocations to this on the investor side, right? I think a lot of people were actually either struggling where to put it or potentially even putting it in their PE bucket, right? Just because of the longer dated, you know, nature of the commitments, you know, so I think that's evolved kind of meaningfully um, where, you know, I think most, if not all, are are getting to the point of having a dedicated uh, allocation for private credit. Um, You know, where the growth of that of of late has been is I think as people are growing those allocations, they're looking to do that in a diversified format. That's created some real tailwinds for the um, asset-based finance effort. Um, So I think on the investor side, you've had, we'll call it more and more interest. You know, I think that was originally... um, you know, almost driven on the the hunt for yield in that, you know, low rate environment that we were in for so long. I think people in today's environment just see if you can get paid, you know, 11 plus percent to lend money to a, you know, fairly large company from an EBITDA perspective, that's really interesting risk adjusted returns. You know, so I think we're seeing, you know, more and more uh, investors pile into the space for that reason. But then on, you know, you think about the product side, 
you know, I think we've seen more and more borrowers want to use private debt uh, as a source for their capital. You know, they, they've, they've always liked the space for, you know, the certainty of execution that it provided, maybe for some of the flexibility that provided. But I think, you know, one of the things specifically on the, on the other side of COVID, people want to know their lender, right? So they can kind of work with them. Um, you know, I think, you know, if, if the need arises kind of post-close of, of a transaction. Right. So I think that's been the big driver of, of what we've seen on the, you know, the deal side. So the capital has come now the, the the deals continue to sort of be there. And then on the asset uh, base side, I think we've just seen more and more assets kind of moving out of the banking system. We've seen more and more specialty finance companies grow who kind of need capital. And we've been able to be a provider of that. Yeah. And I guess along that same line, what what do you see as like the main advantage that private credit offers? Uh, I, I guess you could break it out again by those two specific buckets that you all are operating in. Yeah. And, and I think it's I mean, you, I'm gonna also going to break down kind of the advantages, you know, by the investor or by the user of the capital. Right. I think we're, we're trying to um, create a downside protected investing opportunity in everything that we're doing across private credit. Um, so really thinking about uh, you know, how do we protect principal? Um, uh, how do you ensure that even in those downside cases, you're getting your sort of capital returned? And if you can do that, you know, especially in the, in, in the current environment and preso- you know, provide what we'll call meaningful, you know, sort of uptick in returns uh, from public market activities or just in the environment and today to be able to provide you know, those those double digit numbers um, in terms of a total return. I think that's quite attractive to people. Um, you know, I, I think just to focus on a couple of the points I, I talked about before, we're the way I kind of view this business specifically on the on the direct lending side. You know, we're in the storage business, right? We're working with companies, we're working with financial sponsors to make their loan and effectively hold it to you know when it pays off or when it matures. I think we're not trying to syndicate that risk sort of out. I think we're trying to create structures that work for them, you know, through either different market conditions or or how they want to kind of grow their business. And then I think that ability to, to partner with them on a go forward basis uh, is important. I mean, we view all these companies as portfolio companies. I think we're kind of vested in their um, in their future, just like, you know, their owners are. And I think that's an important you know, differentiation versus the, you know, the private markets versus the public markets. Yeah. And I guess turning back then to you mentioning the these various strategies that KKR operates in. How do you think about the addressable market right now across those different sleeves? And, and you know, uh, on the macro side, I think we've got a couple of different pressures, you know, and then also the Fed just in terms of keeping rates higher and then the potential for them then to cut. So how are you thinking about the uh, addressable market overall? Yeah, well, the macro has definitely been interesting the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, right? You've got a, a bunch of different variables. I think that's kept us um, all on, on our toes. Um, you know, I think it's been a really good, we'll call it investing environment, um, you know, since the, you know, the beginning of Q1 of 2022, right? On the corporate side, you know, the syndicated loan markets have definitely, have generally been shut. Um, so, you know, private debt has been the only game in town uh, that's provided, you know, we'll call it good opportunities uh, to be a lender. It's provided us, you know, the ability to kind of fill the void. Um, with capital that we can provide to these companies. You know, if there's been one sort of downside there, it's been, you know, M&A volume has been at, you know, we'll call it more historically low levels. Um, 
you know, that uh, hasn't necessarily, you know, offset kind of deal counts. So, but those deal counts of a lot of that has been, you know, lending into existing situations or add-ons into existing positions. Um, you know, but, you know, we feel really good about, about that lending environment now, especially, you know, we're getting access to, to these larger companies who either, again, because the syndicated loan market's been more volatile or because they want to, you know, be inside the private debt space. You know, we think that's pretty attractive. You know, the, I think the, the tailwinds for the asset backside have probably been uh, larger, right? We've got kind of what I'd call our regular way kind of deal flow there. But we've had a couple of themes kind of pop out, you know, that has been, I think, quite, you know, good from an investing opportunity perspective. You know, one of them has been around the regional banks in the U.S. and either selling assets or kind of not adding to their asset portfolios. Can we fill that void? Um, and, you know, the other has been, I think, just around corporates more broadly being more strategic with their own kind of capital allocation. So certain large companies who we might not normally get access to kind of deal flow in that in that uh, asset based space are, are coming to us for solutions. And that's been you know really nice to see. And, and I want to turn back to something you touched on earlier, just in terms of the, the importance of scale that you that you mentioned for you. Uh, and being a bigger firm, how does that play into helping out in terms of like the due diligence process for for you all? Uh, you know, are there times where maybe you can leverage, you know, the the size and other areas of the business to help out in that due diligence process? No, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I I think part of it is just driven off the thesis that you know we're we're generally trying to lend to larger companies, right? If you looked at our last flagship fund that invested kind of 17 to 21, that was 102 million dollars of EBITDA. You look at the current funds that are investing, you're probably closer to 200, although that's probably a bit skewed because that syndicated loan market um, has been closed, you know, and or volatile, as I said. You know, thematically, we want to be there sort of on purpose, right? We think these companies almost by definition, you know, have a better CEO and sort of management team, uh, better corporate governance, you know, less customer concentration or less supplier concentration, you know, just at the end of the day, you know, more levers to pull if something goes wrong. And when we're thinking about, you know, downside protected uh, investing kind of thematics, you know, I think you want to be versus those larger names. And we haven't seen, you know, maybe the market getting rewarded for kind of not doing that. You know, in terms of, you know, we spent a lot of time in the past, you know, seven years, you know, the, the theme that I've been using is kind of institutionalizing our business, right? So more people dedicated on the origination side, um, you know, more uh, longer tenured folks kind of focused on structuring and execution um, of the deals. We've hired uh, lawyers not to be part of our general counsel's office, uh, but rather to be part of the deal team, you know, kind of working to execute these deals in an appropriate manner. Um, we've built a workout team of, you know, kind of seven folks. You know, not everything will always go right in these loans. You need the expertise to do that. You know, I mentioned that portfolio monitoring <clears throat> function. You know, there's 20 people there who do an amazing job just helping us kind of monitor the portfolio sort of post-close. So I think we really try to, you know, create a, a world-class um let's just call it sort of lending operation. And then we do get the benefits of, of accessing the entire firm, right? You know, we, you know, we had a, a transaction, even, even in investment committee today that our private equity colleagues had looked at that company several times over the last few years. You know, we can bring them in. They can give us views on, on the company, the sector, the management team, um, you know, really just give us, you know, differentiated angles. I think that's sort of been helpful. 
Um, it is kind of amazing the number of times that some of the large customers or suppliers of names we're lending to uh, either are KKR portfolio companies or have been at a different point, right? That's been sort of really helpful. Um, we have a, a, a very strong uh, leverage credit uh, investing team. You know, they've got north of a, of a thousand names in their portfolio, kind of accessing industry knowledge there. And then the firm sort of generally um, has done a great job of building re resources in our kind of macro research team or our KKR sort of global institute. You know, all just resources that we can sort of touch to help us make better investment decisions. Yeah, and, and digging in a little bit there, a couple of questions come to mind. So so first, just in terms of the timeline that you guys all see in terms of that due diligence process, how long does that typically take? Are we talking, you know, days, weeks, or, you know, for some of these bigger deals, is that a couple months? And then also on top of that, like, what is the acceptance rate looking like uh, for the deals that you guys are going through? Yeah, I think we have the ability to kind of move fast, right? That's, that's you know, I think one of the advantages of, of a private debt market. I mean, you know, that said, you know, these are transactions that go through, you know, probably multiple screenings or multiple IC sort of processes before you kind of get to the end of the day. You know, so that's more in the weeks, months camp, um, you know, as it relates to uh, your kind of, you know, more regular way kind of deal. Uh, you know, some of the deals in the asset back space could be longer than that. Right. One of the largest deals we closed this year, you know, from start to finish was probably closer to a year. Right. Due to the complexity and the strategic nature of that transaction for um, for the person who we were doing the deal with. So, you know, th we're, we're, this is definitely not a business where you're getting a package. You're making a decision in sort of days. Right. It, 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 it iterates over, you know, multiple, um, you know, multiple meetings, multiple investments, sort of committee discussions. And then you, you do touch on this one point about kind of the, the either the acceptance rate or kind of your hit rate. You know, we're, we're in normalized markets. You know, we're looking at probably somewhere 100 to 150 deals in kind of any one month. Um, and we're probably doing kind of three to five percent of those. Right now, I, I think you need to be kind of cautional, but I'm not sure it matters that much if that number is three or five or seven or, or, or even sort of 10. It's just showing we have the ability to, to be selective in what we do. You know, I think we, you know, say no a lot. But if, if, if we're going to say no, we try to say no, you know, kind of more quickly. And then obviously some of those deals also just didn't happen. Right. Or we were backing a horse who sort of might have lost. But, you know, I, I, I think the big theme is, again, not the number specifically, but in this uh, part of the investing space, you know, we don't have to do, you know, deals in line with with an index or a specific portfolio construction. If anything, I think we're trying to be more defensive, trying to create a portfolio that we feel really comfortable with in all economic cycles. Interesting. So I guess maybe before we dive into some of the specific strategies a little bit, you know, one of the hot buzz issues of late uh, has certainly been sort of uh, the, the the rising cacophony for sort of regulation and disclosure. You know, private credit, private credit uh, sort of as an asset class is generally, you know, opaque. And that seems to me sort of rather a feature versus a risk. But, you know, I guess uh, how do you think about sort of the regulatory backdrop today and do you see it evolving similarly in terms of disclosure do you do you think about how that plays through the asset class no sure and that has been you know a topic that's definitely been uh sort of discussed more or sort of written about um of late you know i i think i look at it from a from a couple of ways you know i, I think the industry has been 
uh, thoughtful and has done a nice job by uh, really creating structures that are match funded, right? So I think about the pools of capital we're raising, um, you know, they are long dated, you know, those pools of capital are, are kind of matching the the investments that they're making. And they're, you know, not pools of capital that generally have any, you know, mechanism to, to create an instantaneous uh, redemption. So I think that's an important sort of piece of, of the puzzle. Um, you know, I, I think we actually give a fair amount of, of transparency to our investors. You know, when I do think about our investor reporting, you know, there's generally a case study of every deal that we've kind of done kind of in there. You know, that's a pretty in-depth kind of one pager. Obviously, the BDC we manage is, is publishing a, a full list every quarter of its kind of full schedule of investments. Um, you know, so I think we, you know, want to work hard to educate people that, you know, it is it, it, not sort of trying to be sort of opaque out there, right? You know, a lot of this stuff is, is just simply kind of lending money to companies and we think we can be pretty sort of transparent with that, um, you know, as we move forward. But, you know, I, I, I think the, the more important piece has been, in my mind at least, especially having worked at, at, at banks for so long, is making sure the, the funding structures don't have those asset liability mismatches. So for the people who say, oh, you know, maybe there's systemic risk here, the answer to them would be what? Uh, I think the answer is is there's not right. I think systemic risk usually does um, go along, you know, the, the idea that there could be an event which causes effectively a great unwind, right? That could cause kind of instantaneous losses. You know, I think clearly there can be underperformance on individual loans. Um, you know, I, I think you know our job is to create a very good investor experience and, and deliver you know what we told them from kind of that you know targeted basis out of the gate. And I think if we if we don't do our job, you know, it's probably going to be harder for us to raise capital on kind of a go forward basis. Uh, but when you do think about the investor bases here, um, you know, the, the main investor base is that institutional investor side. So these are the largest state pension plans, um, you know, the largest kind of corporate pension plans, insurance companies, kind of sovereign wealth funds. And, and you know, the, the the pools of capital are just set up to to where they're investing, you know, the, you know, for an extended, you know, period of time. These are generally three-year investment period, kind of five-year harvest period, a couple, you know, extensions within theirs. And I think that really does remove the concern of, of, of systemic risk. So I guess maybe relatedly, but still different, uh, you know, leverage uh, is another thing that seems to sort of be a little bit, uh, you know, at the user's discretion in the space. Uh, does KKR like to utilize leverage? Does it matter in terms of what the underlying asset class is? Does it vary in terms of the BDC versus, say, direct lending versus structured product, et cetera? Yeah, it, it does matter um, for sure. You know, I think our, you know, on the direct lending side, you know, inside of our institutional funds, we both have funds that do use leverage and funds that don't, you know, so the investor can choose kind of where they go. Um you know, I think the leverage in those funds is is generally pretty muted, right? We're we're targeting a really a one-time sort of leverage number. You know, that that leverage is traditionally provided by um, banks, but you think about that from a rating perspective, it's probably single to double A sort of rated. Um, again, kind of match-funded leverage to kind of match against the assets. Um, you know, the BDC is a little bit different. I mean, the BDC, you know, our our publicly traded BDC, the stock symbol is FSK. You know, that is a living and breathing entity. Uh, it actually has investment grade ratings from from several rating agencies. You know, I think we've done a, a good job there on, on the liability side. You know, we're thoughtful about it. We've got a large 
you know, five-year committed sort of bank deal. We access the unsecured bond market from time to time, uh, which has, I think, been a nice funding diversification tool. You know, we've accessed even the CLO market for sort of that vehicle. So, you know, I, I but, you know, just last point of the BDC there, we, we provide the market a target leverage range, you know, where we want to be between one and one and a quarter. Right. And that's even though the, you know, the public cap for those entities is, is, is two times, but I think, you know, that's the right level to be, that's the right level that works for the rating categories that you want to be in. Um, so we've got some folks who, you know, wake up every day and think about the liability sides of these pools of capital. Um, and it's our job to be, I think, you know, pretty cautious and deliberate for how we put that on. Interesting. So, and you'd referenced, you know, sort of the underlying EBITDA that you're generally targeting is going to be a little bit larger, sort of in that 200 to $250 million range. So what does that translate to in terms of the type of checks that KKR is looking to write, given the size of the fund, I would assume that, you know, you're not looking to cut 50 million here or, you know, 75 million there. Yeah, no, that, that, that's fair. And I think just to be clear, I mean, you know, I, in my mind, we focus on the upper end of the middle market, right? That used to mean 50 to $100 million of EBITDA, right? Today, you know, that average EBITDA is closer to that $200 million range. Um, I do think that's high, though, just, just because the syndicated market has been closed and some of these larger borrowers have sort of come to us, but trying to focus on these larger companies, right? And, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, that we're not going to do a deal that's 25 to 50, but the bar for that would be extremely high. Um, and... You know, again, for the reasons that, um, you know, for the reasons that I mentioned before, you know, when you put that in context, you know, I, I think we we have the ability to, you know, hold large kind of check sizes, you know, whether they're 600, 700, sort of $800 million, you know, I think the average kind of deal size we're doing is probably, you know, probably closer to the $400 million area. But you, you want to have the ability to control these deals. You want to have the ability to, um, you know, lead these deals. Um, and if you think about just from a competitive sense, almost null to your point, like you, you're not going to be competitive if, if, if it's a $500 million loan and you say you're good for a hundred, right? <laughs> you need to be able to kind of, you know, step up and, 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 um, you know, be the sole lender. You know, I do think in the market we're in, there's probably been a greater amount of, of club deals than we've seen in the past. Um, you know, I think some of that has to do with, uh, just the size of the companies that, you know, are accessing this market. I think some of it has to do with, you know, there, there hasn't been a ton of M&A. So people are, 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 are looking to get involved in, in transactions when they become live. But I also think in, in more volatile markets, it kind of doesn't surprise you, right? I think, I think in a market that's a little bit more frothy, when you like a credit, you want to walk in and say that I'm here's, I'm ready to do it all. These are the terms I'm going to do it. In a little bit more volatile markets, you might say, you know what, I'm good for sort of two thirds, but let's see who else is there. And if their terms are a little bit less or, or weaker, we'll get the benefit of that. And do you see some of those larger club deals as, as sort of ripe for should the market steady and, and, you know, the syndicated loan market come back, that those are maybe ones that are sort of first in the queue to get refied? Or do you not really differentiate there? I don't I don't think we really differentiate them. I mean, we're in. We're in the business here of, um, you know, for our corporate credit um, sort of effort of, of getting paid back, right? So it's, you know, I think that's, that's you know, part of what you'd expect. You're obviously benefiting from upfront fees on these deals. You know, all the deals are coming with, with Call Pro, right? Whether that's 103, 102, 101, or 102, 101, you know, if it's, if it's a subordinate debt instrument, it would be kind of much more material than that. So, you know, I think that is some level of our expectation. 
right, that you'll see some refis. On the other side of that, though, I think when you do see, you know, those refis come through, it probably means a more active M&A market generally. Um, so I think we'd see increased deal flow on the other side. So I guess maybe one of the other things that sort of comes up and, and there's, you know, there's periodic market commentary. There's a seems to be a little bit of an itchiness for which is sort of, uh, you know, a secondary market. Now, you know, we hear about sort of pieces trading sort of, you know, by appointment, certainly, uh, you know, where people need to get out of, you know, whatever, whether it's a club deal or whatever else. How do you think about sort of a, an evolution of the secondary market? And the, are there pieces that just aren't there in terms of market structure right now? Uh, that you think would be required to sort of facilitate that evolution? Yeah, I'm probably a little bit more negative on on a, a large secondary market sort of, you know, coming to be here. Um, you know, I think there's definitely the ability uh, to sell some of the loans in your portfolio to other large players that you might know, especially if they happen to be kind of club deals. And people will do that from time to time to, you know, address portfolio construction matters or maybe certain sort of ramp up matters. Um, but I think most of us in this space, going back to my kind of simplistic comment, you know, we're, we're, we're in the storage business, right? We're doing these, you know, loans to hold them until they repay, you know, or, or get to the maturity date. So I just don't see that as like the primary purpose for doing this. I think we're underwriting them with kind of that in mind. Um, so I think you'll see a little bit of, of, you know, loans trading hands, but not in a, a more traditional secondary market idea. Interesting. So, I, I mean, you alluded to some of the deals that I guess have, have been sort of on the table with the closure of, of the syndicated loan market. And I guess, you know, in, in KKR put out a paper, I guess, at the end of last year about how the new 4060 should now be a 40, 30, 30 or, or whatever with sort of an allocation to private credit being maybe 10% of sort of that fixed allocation. How do you think about or what is the right role, do you think, for private credit, whether it's in the market, more broadly speaking, uh, in terms of what role does it play? And then secondarily, in terms of an investor portfolios? Yeah, I think the piece you're, you're referring to was written by our global macro team, who was uh, run by a gentleman, Henry McVeigh. You know, I, I think last year was a really hard year for that kind of regular way, 60-40 sort of concept. Right. Both sides were sort of down, you know, 20 percent sort of plus. You know, I think the, the real kind of thesis there was to kind of take that down an additional level. Right. And, and what else can kind of make up that portfolio? You know, I think there as there has been this greater acceptance of private credit that people have started to get, you know, more dedicated allocations. Uh, I think it's given them the opportunity to just create some additional returns. Right. Most of the large investors here. Uh, are very happy to get paid for that illiquidity, right? Because if, if we're honest with it, what is the, you know, the, the one kind of main drawback here is, you know, we're not waking up expecting we can sell a bunch of this portfolio, right? Or people can put in a redemption notice and get all their money back sort of quickly, right? So we have to offer them, you know, a couple hundred basis points plus of kind of additional uh, total return. You know, so I think a lot of it has been that kind of yield pickup, right? Um and then I think some people have just been drawn by, you know, what are some of the key features uh, of the private debt market, which has you know, in, in really been inclusive of these longer due diligence periods, you know, probably, you know, more detail or kind of stricter documentation. Right. So I think I think that remains. And I think you're going to c continue to see people either you know, increasing or just more formalizing that that private credit allocation. And then I mentioned this, you know. Uh, a bit ago, I think people have also been drawn to the asset-based finance space. Um, 
as a way to get that private uh, credit exposure. Those are not us buying QSIPs. That is, you know, all privately uh, originated and privately negotiated transactions. But, you know, that portfolio um, will perform very differently than just your regular way kind of corporate credit book. Right. So they're able to increase that private credit bucket with uh, with a certain amount of additional diversification. Yeah, so we definitely want to touch on that uh, a little bit more, but maybe first I, I want to kind of capitalize on, you know, your experience, particularly in that structured space. I mean, you you definitely spent some time uh, pricing trading some pretty complex structures. As we think about how this market has grown, private credit, whether we're talking, you know, to the direct lending side or the structured side, uh, and you talked about sort of the the liquidity premium that's sort of put in place there of a couple hundred basis points. Do you think that the the role that this market has played, whether it's sort of extending the, the credit cycle at the margins, et cetera, do you think that there's room or that it has an impact in terms of how risk gets priced more broadly in some of the lower liquid markets? You know, I'm not sure that it necessarily extends the credit cycle, right? I, I think I think you could look at it, you know, in, in, in one um you know, one element as it relates to that, you know, I think there's there's historically, you know, in, in markets, always conversations when you're sort of around a recession about a maturity wall and what that maturity <laughs> wall might sort of mean. Um, you know, I actually view the maturity wall as a pipeline opportunity, right, for, for us in the private credit market. So, you know, maybe there is a certain amount of, of, of extension there. But I mean, I do think, you know, most of these loans are going to be you know, let's call it highly correlated uh, to what happens kind of macro happens in the U.S. economy, right? I think we're trying to pick and choose loans that we think are, um, you know, not going to be uh, that cyclical. You look at our largest, um, you know, sectors from a portfolio construction perspective, uh, you're probably focused on, you know, software, business services, insurance brokerage, um, you know, healthcare, although healthcare has been you know, a little bit difficult of late in, in certain sort of, you know, segments. So um, I, I just view it more as a funding alternative for these companies rather than, you know, an, an, an extension of a credit cycle. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in my 25 years in the industry, it's uh, every year you're talking about a maturity wall, but I think the only one we ever hit was 2001. So <laughs> very different and very different markets then, right? Or available capital pools. Exactly. Yeah. So, and Dan, I want to step back a little bit here, just in terms of the the private credit cycle more broadly. Uh, on your end, just in terms of the narrative that we've seen, you know, I, I think it started out a little bit more of private credit being in its golden age versus now. You and Noel were just discussing um, a little bit of concern around regulation. First off, where do you think we are in terms of the evolution of the asset class, and then what do you think it looks like over the next couple of years? Yeah, well, first of all, I, 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 I would expect you to still see growth in this market, right? I think the, the growth in the direct lending market is, is probably, you know, a little bit more consistent. I think that's, you know, at least in its kind of later innings in some ways, right? Um, you know, I, I, think, I think what you have seen in some ways, and this is for direct lending specifically, is you've seen... Um, you know, people were thinking that it was just filling the void kind of post the financial crisis. And then you saw, you know, a, a lot of money being raised for middle market private equity. You know, it needed capital to finance that. So, you know, I think the market grew from that. And I think investors saw, you know, the additional return they were able to get 
Um, so you saw some additional kind of capital allocated to the space. And then, you know, then I think you saw maybe one of the only good things that happened from COVID is kind of people wanted to know their lenders. So you had this kind of greater adoption of the product. So in my mind, all you've kind of seen in that direct lending space is it being kind of uh, an, an equal counterparty to a company can access the syndicated loan market, they can access the high yield bond market, they can access you know the private debt market or the or the direct lending market, right? So I think it's just become kind of that equal. Uh, I think where you're going to see probably you know more rapid growth. But I say that in some ways because I think you know it's it's where direct lending was five or seven years ago is in the asset based finance um, sort of effort. I think a lot of investors are still getting themselves you know up the curve there, trying to figure out kind of the best way to invest there. You know we estimate you know that market size is even bigger than what we see on the corporate credit side, right? You know closer to five six trillion dollars right now. Not everything there is for us, right? We're not trying to chase the mortgage product that's done by your you know, regular way, Main Street or sort of High Street Bank. Um, but I think you're, you know, not a lot of people have raised scale pools of capital there. Not a lot of people have, you know, kind of larger dedicated teams. So from just a pure percentage basis, I think you probably see larger growth there uh, in the near term. Yeah. And I think another interesting area, just in terms of, I guess, the the broader narrative that we've been seeing, and it's something that you alluded to earlier, is uh, around the dry powder that we've been seeing, uh, just in terms of both the private credit side and in private equity more generally. And, and I think as well with that, you've seen direct lenders, uh, some of these deals have been increasingly focused on those PE sponsored deals. Do you, do you see that being a sustainable trend or is it something where, you know, we might hit a little bit of a ceiling in terms of the, the rate of growth of that AUM? You know, I, I don't think you're going to see a, a, a ceiling. Um, and the reason I say that is, is, you know, I think there's a lot of folks who historically had not accessed, you know, the direct lending market, but now are viewing it as that, you know, competitive product. Um, now, I think there'll be you know, times when other financing markets can be more attractive, right? And, and but that just goes to, to, to where I was before that, you know, companies can access, you know, different, you know, different financing, um, you know, options for, for their companies. And, and just think about kind of those, you know, that kind of growth numbers, because more and more people are, are, are accessing this part of the market. I think you can still see this, you know, low to mid double, low to mid double digit growth, um, you know, that we've seen in the space, you know, continue for the, for the next handful of years. So I want to maybe tack back to structured credit, uh, since that is sort of a, a strength for, for yourself and KKR. And I, as you mentioned, it sort of makes up a pretty sizable portion of the, of the 83 billion, a lot of flavors here, you know, so from the more esoteric, like uh, music royalties or something like that to something a little bit more scale, like real estate. Maybe uh, could you walk us through how KKR is set up uh, in the structured space and, and sort of what it's positioned to really tackle? No, for sure. I think we've we've taken you know maybe a different approach than most, at least out of the gate. Right, we wanted to be active across you know multiple asset sort of types or sort of multiple sort of asset sectors. Right, we didn't want to be you know niche. We didn't want to be sort of one product only. You know, I do view this this part of the market as a bit more opportunistic and thematic than something like direct lending. So we wanted to be able to sort of toggle between sort of different things, 
right? So when, you know, we, we've got a, a dedicated team focused on consumer related deals, you know, whether they be, you know, auto loans uh, or student loans or other things of, of kind of that nature, you know, we've got a dedicated team focused on, on the mortgage space. We've got, you know, people focused on, on the hard asset space, you know, the other two buckets for us, you know, one would be commercial finance, um, which a lot of that is probably lending facilities that, you know, banks had historically done, but due to uh, either regulatory capital rules or otherwise, or maybe falling more into kind of the space um, like ours, right? And the last bucket for us is contractual cash flows, which does pick up, you know, maybe some of these more off the run kind of deals. You know, we, we have been active uh, in music royalties, as, as you've mentioned. You know, I think that's an important part of, of the way uh, that we do invest in that space. Um, you know, it, it th there are definitely investment themes that we were quite active in, you know, maybe even 16 to sort of 22 that we just haven't been active in of late. Uh, maybe it's just not as interesting. Maybe the total maybe the total return doesn't work. And then I think the other thing that has been quite beneficial to us um, is we have different ways to sort of play in that market, right? We can lend against asset portfolios, you know, creating more investment grade um, like risk products, right? Maybe more valuable to to insurance companies or certain sort of corporate pension plans. Um, you know, we have the ability to, you know, buy loan portfolios that exist today or buy loan portfolios that might exist uh, on a go forward basis. We have the ability to essentially partner with banks and maybe they want to do the more senior note. Maybe we're doing kind of more the mezzanine note, um, but sort of lending in a private sort of mez, you know, ABS structure. Or then we can either lend money or provide capital to platforms who are originating these assets. Right. So I think we've got this, um, you know, multi asset class, multi sector approach with the ability to, you know, play up and down the capital structure and invest in different ways. But at the end of the day, you know, all the risk of these transactions really relate to how do the underlying assets perform. So, you know, we want to be kind of experts in these respective asset classes and have real views how they perform kind of in all economic cycles. So I am curious. So when you do something like music royalties, do you require everybody at KKR to listen to that specific kind of music more on Spotify or somewhere else? <laughs> there is there is a playlist for the portfolio that we bought. Um, All right. <laughs> that, that, that's sort of on Spotify, but, but no requirements, no requirements. All right. So I guess one of the things that, you know, kind of comes up to as you're talking about some of these contractual or even like lending to lend. So like the payday lenders, uh, or I guess the, the big thing is, is the buy now, pay later. Where do you sort of draw the line at risk or do you adhere to sort of the old market adage that it, there's no bad bond, there's just bad pricing? No, we, we definitely don't adhere to that. I mean, there's definitely parts of the market that we are staying away from, right? You know, in, in this investment strategy, <clears throat> you know, I, I view this as very much the developed market kind of business. So that really means the U.S. and Western Europe. Um, you know, we're staying away from some of the niche kind of asset classes like litigation finance. I think some people have done a good job there. That's just not one for us. Um, you know, we, we actually stay away from things like payday lending. Right. I don't want kind of that high APR sort of lending sort of efforts there. Um, you know, part of it's just how the, the how the underlying customers are sort of being treated. Um, but, you know, that 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 stuff just could be very cyclical and, and not something you're going to want to be in a sort of different environments. Right. Um, you know, we've been very light on kind of subprime exposure kind of generally. Right. So I think that's kind of first and and. 
you know, first and foremost, um, you know, I think we're watching the consumer a lot in this market. Uh, we're starting, you know, to see a, a bit of a bifurcation, you know, where the higher FICO consumer is, is, is holding up, you know, better. Um, you know, I think there's a handful of reasons for that. And then, and then the more, you know, the lower FICO consumers are kind of reverting back to, you know, pre-COVID kind of delinquency and sort of default numbers. You know, this, that's almost the reverse of what you saw during the financial crisis. So that during the financial crisis, that higher FICO consumer underperformed its base case expectations, you know, much more than, than the subprime sort of consumer, right? And forget kind of mortgages. I'm talking about more kind of auto loans and, and sort of things of that nature, right? So I think we're, we're mindful about that on, on the consumer side. I think when we are taking consumer risk, I think we're trying to do that uh, in generally a secured format. Um, you know, so think about, you know, being secured by that automobile or, or something in, in kind of the RV or sort of marine space, but where you do have a certain amount of, of kind of collateral there. And we've also had a pretty strong bias um, in that consumer loan space towards homeowners, right? So home improvement lending is, is an area we focus on a lot. We've just seen the homeowner kind of performing better, um, you know, than, than the person who sort of doesn't own it. Uh, you, you, you mentioned the, the, the buy now sort of pay later space, right? We've not been active in that in the United States. Um, you know, this is public. We did a, a, a pretty large transaction uh, in Europe uh, with PayPal. You know, I think the, the characteristics um, of that are, are, are pretty meaningfully different. Um, you know, I think they were an excellent, you know, company to partner with on a project like that. So, you know, we're going to be selective, um, you know, generally, and then try to just avoid areas, you know, where, where we just don't like the up-down kind of general. So you mentioned the the asset class is really sort of theme-based in terms of how you want to invest in it, and we kind of parse through some of the consumer side of it. Are there any other sort of prevailing themes that, that sort of are dictating how you're thinking about, uh, you know, the structured or the asset back side today? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you maybe just three quick points, right? So one... Just an example, a little bit of the pivot. I mean, one of our big themes, you know, probably 16 through through early 22 was kind of U.S. housing, right? We were trying to get exposure there in, in, um, in a bunch of different ways. Um, you know, I, I think we saw undersupply in the market. We saw it was hard to get a mortgage in the U.S. You didn't see that sort of speculation. You know, I think that thematic proved out to be well, uh, to be to be correct. You know, we've probably been going slower there in the last, you know, we'll call it 18 months. You know, some of that is just where yields are on products versus financing costs. Um, you know, that said, I think we've still been pretty, you know, active in, in kind of the whole loan resi space as just the returns there are, are quite attractive versus the risk you're taking. Um, so I think we're constructive housing, but, um, you know, I think just that there's been that shift in the last 18 months. You know, I think the two big investing themes you know, of late for us there is, and, you know, I mentioned these kind of quickly before, one's been the regional banks, right? We are seeing asset sales kind of occurring. Um, we are seeing them being kind of more thoughtful around their balance sheets, either to, to reduce risk or just from time to time, you know, looking to bring in partners on certain parts of the portfolio so they can continue to, you know, grow that um, sort of those risk books. So that's been sort of quite interesting for us. We've also seen some of those banks, you know, take a step back from just the assets they used to buy from FinCos, right? So this is not us buying portfolios from the banks, but rather stepping in and kind of filling the void um, 
when they were sort of buyers of assets. And then, you know, I think we've seen banks generally and maybe a little bit more globally being a little bit more thoughtful about their capital planning. Right. And are these some of these you know, SRTs or significant risk tra transfer transactions? Again, I'm viewing these more in partnership with the banks, you know, to allow them to continue to grow their sort of risk book. So I think theme number one has been, you know, kind of the we'll call it the banking system. And then theme number two has been, you know, around some of these larger what I'll call more sophisticated corporates, you know, looking for pools of capital like ours to partner with them. You know, maybe they want to, you know, be active in, you know, the leasing business that they're focused on or, or somebody like sort of PayPal, I think that was a strategic transaction for them to be involved in that business, but have a party who was actually providing the capital. You know, we're excited about those deals. You know, the quality of those uh, companies that we're able to partner with there is, is, is quite attractive. But, you know, those kind of last two themes that I mentioned there is, is probably the biggest two themes in, you know, for us right now in, in investing in that space. Do you do anything in terms of the infrastructure side? Is that a space that you dabble in at all? You know, we have a very large effort as a firm uh, with our infrastructure private equity business, right? That's obviously separate um, from what we're sort of talking about here. You know, from time to time, we'll be involved in, in an infrastructure debt deal, but that has not been a, a tremendously large kind of focus for us. You know, we do have, you know, folks on the team who've got some real expertise, Um uh, in the renewable space. And if we can find some financing deals there, we'll definitely sort of partake in that. So I want to change gears just a little bit here, just turning to the, the data side of things for you all. I, we've talked with some shops in the past who have really highlighted the advantage that, that data plays in their investment process, just in terms of, you know, one, just the size of data sets that they have available. And then two, the ways that they're able to use those data sets to um, identify some risk mispri mispricing. Um, so for, for you all, what is, what is the data, what is the role that data plays um, in the investment process? Yeah, I think it's important. Um, you know, I, I think the most simplistic versions of it is, you know, for all the portfolios that we've acquired in, in the asset backspace, um, you know, being able to look at kind of the, the, the history there, how certain, you know, sectors, um, of those underlying, you know, portfolios have, have performed, how to apply that knowledge um, as we think about kind of pricing forward risk, right? That's, that's extremely helpful, right? Especially, you know, if there's a new deal that comes to market, but we've been active, um, you know, in that space, or, or maybe even certain instances, we've actually been active with that company before, right? So we'd have a real head start versus other in the market. So you almost put that in this kind of incumbency kind of lender bucket, which has been important, right? So I think it plays a real role um, in our asset back business. Yeah, we have uh, worked hard to put a, a, a decent amount of technology, even our corporate credit business, right? A lot of those deals there, we're getting monthly reporting that's being, um, you know, kind of taken directly and uploaded kind of into a system. We can see trends kind of across the portfolio, right? We're focused on, you know, reviewing that, you know, portfolio in total, at least on a quarterly basis. You know, we try to do those reviews by sectors, right? So you can see, you know, um, just one company versus the next, you can see what the, you know, the, the performance or underperformance might have been. And that's even before you think about all the credits that we might have, you know, inside our leverage credit business. So I think using that and using that, um, uh, in a manner to really help you is, 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 is super important. I, I think it's a little bit, 
of kind of a newer concept. I don't think we spent a lot of time on technology in kind of 16, 17, sort of 18, but we're doing that now. Yeah. And then I guess related to that, uh, the big buzz topic of, of AI and, and machine learning, have you guys thought about, you know, leveraging that to improve some of your processes or is it still just on the back burner in terms of, of, of adopting it? I don't, th- I don't think back burner is the right thing. I mean, I think firm wide, we've got that in mind and in, in you know, a lot of what we're doing and we're trying to find ways to bring that, um, you know, to bear to, to your point, kind of improving our processes. Uh, I think, you know, we're, we're credit investors generally. So we're always kind of thinking about the downside. It's probably been a more active conversation in kind of new deals, right. And what, what sectors or businesses might get disrupted from AI and effectively, you know, either trying to avoid those, you know, kind of generally you're trying to be more conservative in your approach there. So maybe turning to the direct lending side here, and, and I think we've already kind of hit on some of the characteristics in terms of, you know, the EBITDA scale and the checks you like to write. So maybe just focusing uh, a little bit in terms of the downside piece of it, you had mentioned sort of having the seven people on your group uh, that are there to sort of do workouts if it comes to that. I guess, given that, you know, it's a universe that's largely floating rate, you know, rates have obviously moved up pretty substantially over the last 18 months and change. Maybe we're higher for longer, maybe we're not. How do you think about sort of the current borrower universe in terms of relative credit health? Uh, is it really just specific to deal vintage here? Yeah, I mean, well, first and foremost, the, you know, the, the rate environment has clearly put a cash flow burden on these companies, right? That's kind of across the board. I think, you know, I think, you know, our, our kind of interest coverage ratios are, are probably down, you know, kind of a full turn, um, you know, from what they would have been, um, you know, a year and a half ago. You know, we, like others, published that as part of our, you know, kind of BDC reporting. So that's kind of out there. You know, on, on the other side, I think we have generally been um, happy with what we've seen in terms of corporate performance. I think the thesis of lending money to these larger companies has meant that they've been in a better position to pass along, um, you know, pricing increases uh, or kind of manage kind of costs. And we've actually seen EBITDA growth consistently quarter on quarter, you know, across the portfolio, albeit, you know, it it has slowed in in recent quarters. You know, I think I think the challenges, you know, this is a non-investment credit book. There's always going to be a certain amount of challenges kind of inside a portfolio. I think the challenges that we have seen have been you know, a little bit more idiosyncratic to the name, right? Maybe they did an M&A deal that didn't work out as well. Maybe they did a systems update, didn't work out as well. Maybe they lost a, you know, a customer. You know, the only sector that I think outside of retail, which has been sort of a challenge for a long time, you know, the only other sector that I think we've seen, you know, more kind of challenges today has been kind of healthcare, mainly, mainly those names that are kind of capped on the reimbursement side, maybe they're Medicare or Medicaid. And, and kind of the, the cost side of the equation has kind of gone up pretty meaningfully. Um, you know, what I think we have seen though is is when there is a challenge in a company because of this higher sort of you know interest burden, um, it is creating kind of a liquidity challenge faster than you would have expected historically, right? And that I think has forced us you know on certain deals to get back to the table. You know, I think you asked this question before. I mean, we we lend money to both to kind of sponsor-owned companies as well as kind of non-sponsor-owned sort of names. You know, I, I think we've seen, 
we'll call it positive working relationships across the board. Obviously, one advantage to a sponsor name is there could be the additional capital that could sort of go in there, and we've seen pretty good support. Obviously, we're not underwriting that, <clears throat> um, you know, but it is it is kind of good to see. You know, I think we've I think this idea of portfolio monitoring and portfolio management kind of post close is mission critical. Right. It's 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 pretty easy in my mind to kind of wire the money out. Sometimes it's harder to get it back. <laughs> and, you know, so I think spotting these trends early, um, you know, the, the woman who runs our, our workout effort uh, is is on our investment committees. You know, so she's seeing deals day one. You know, that team's getting involved when something gets on the watch list. You know, I think the, one of the big benefits to to private credit is getting back to the table earlier or getting a couple bites of the apple. Right. But, but before you'd actually get to some kind of actual sort of default, and you look to de-risk that position along the way. But I think if you're going to be a good lender, you, you need to be prepared to run the company if that if there is a default. Right. That's not like the stated goal in any scenario. Um, but if you're going to maximize your recovery for your investors, um, you know, you need to be able to do that. Obviously, we've got a lot of resources here at KKR that can help that. But we've also got this dedicated team that's kind of waking up every day. It's an extremely important part of the investment team, but to kind of manage these things to the to the maximum recovery possible. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because you, you'll definitely hear, you know, others that whether they're doing special situations or whatever else where that sort of loan to own or that idea of sort of owning the company outright versus just being a lender definitely does not appeal uh, and they'll, you know, whether they're four sellers or they're just otherwise looking to get out of that position in advance of that. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic. I guess, you know, maybe what does that process look like, that decision tree look like when you're making that decision in terms of you'd mentioned, you know, you're able to because of the relationship and everything else. And I'm assuming maybe the covenant package and the way the terms are drawn up that you're able to sort of more narrowly scope out the risks and get to that table back to that table sooner what does that process look like maybe in terms of company X kind of enters a state of stress, you know, is the first decision, Hey, listen, like this is a recoverable situation or non-recoverable. And then you kind of make your decision from there. You know, I think first and foremost that you, you're just generally starting off with a simpler set of facts, right? In the regular way, you know, kind of syndicated loan activity, you, you would have kind of those four sellers, right? So you'd have, either the CLOs because it was getting downgraded or maybe some of the banks selling. So when a company was getting to that moment, you know, half the investors bought the loan at 60, half of them bought the loan at par. Right. <laughs> so that created a fairly kind of complicated sort of mix kind of day one. Um, you know, these, as I said before, you know, most of these companies were getting monthly reporting, you know, you know, pretty much all the companies were, were meeting the management teams before we're doing the loan. Uh, you know, we're not buying it off of, um, you know, an IM or, or sort of a pitch book, you know, there's regular dialogues, there's regular calls, right? We want these relationships to be, um, you know, open dialogues, right? We, you know, we're willing to be a, a supporting and sort of good lender to help these companies, you know, get to the either to get to the other side of some of these challenges. But when we do that, we're, you know, we're going to hopefully see some support from, you know, the equity owners of those companies as well, right? So, um, I think every every situation is a little bit different, you know, but I think the from that, you know, simplistic reason, you're starting off from kind of a simpler spot. Right. And I think a, a general you know rule of thumb for us is I think we have a greater ability because 
you know, we're in there from the beginning. You don't have half the lenders at 60 and half the lenders at 100 to really avoid a bankruptcy, right? It, it might mean us still being forced to kind of take the company over. But can you, you know, find an economic solution where there's a more consensual handover? You know, bankruptcies generally aren't good for any company, right? It's, it's bad press. It's bad for their customers. It's bad for their sort of suppliers. Um, so usually we can find a, a workable kind of commercial solution if it sort of, you know, gets to that point. But, um, you know, that's obviously not a, a common occurrence, you know, inside the lending book. I guess maybe a real quick one. Do you have a view in terms of where recoveries or what they might look like in this space? Do you think they're going to be comparable? I mean, we haven't really been through a credit cycle here. Do we think they end up being comparable to what you see either in the leveraged loan space, I would guess would be maybe the best proxy uh, or maybe unsecured? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're 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 right about we haven't kind of been been sort of through this kind of yet, right? I you know COVID you know lasted about twenty days from being kind of a credit issue. Um, you know, I, I do think it was a good stress case for the market, right? I do think it pressure tested a lot of funds and answered some questions to some borrowers if people were gonna you know be able to step up and fund in 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 terms of in times of <clears throat> of market stress. You know, I think we're I think we feel pretty good about, you know, where recovery rates can sort of, you know, settle here, you know, versus, you know, we'll call it other markets. You know, we're generally talking to folks um, about wanting to be sort of 60 to 70 sort of percent plus. I think a lot of that has to do with us, you know, having the ability to get to the table earlier about de-risking some of these kind of positions along the way. Um, but I think the documentation of these deals, you know, over time has held up pretty well. Um, um you know, the, the, the ideas of kind of lender on lender violence and things that you are kind of hearing in the syndicated loan market is not really a concept, you know, inside this private debt market, which I think will help. And I guess, uh, you know, lastly, maybe on the direct lending side, how do you think about in terms of the scale of growth there? And, and do you see it impacting whether it's pricing or covenant quality? Are we seeing any sort of uh, deterioration in sort of the quality of terms as of yet? Or and is that something that you're sort of mindful of? You know, I, I think there's a couple of things that obviously factor into that. I mean, when the, when there is a bunch of, um, you know, available capital that needs to, to be deployed, you can feel a bit of a market technical out there. Right. And I think that that can, you know, impact um, pricing. I don't really see it impacting necessarily you know, the terms point as much, because I think this market has held up, you know, pretty well. Um, you know, that said, um, you know, if you think about, you know, 21 in the beginning of 22 was a, was a pretty frothy time kind of generally, you know, you did see spreads, you know, kind of widened by probably 100 basis points through the second half of 22 and the first half of 23. Um, you know, <clears throat> that was in addition to upfront fees sort of going up, call pro sort of going up. I think you started to see the market give some of that back. You know, I think it's giving it back a little bit because of the technical point that I mentioned there. I mean, spreads are probably down 50 basis points plus, you know, in the last kind of quarter. Um, you know, but I, I also think it's giving it back because I think the world's, you know, I'm in the I'm in the camp of kind of rates higher for sort of longer, but I think the the world's also getting their kind of head around that, you know, while inflation is still there, maybe it's been capped or maybe it's starting to kind of decrease. But then I also think you you have that lack of M&A, right, which, you know, people do want to do transactions. So I think people are sort of clamoring for kind of more deals. So I think there's a bunch of factors that go into that. But those are a few. 
So, so Dan, you guys recently published a report on private credit in uh, the Asia Pacific region, and in it, you guys highlighted, you know, some strengths just in terms of of the more developed markets over there. For you guys, how do you think about, you know, the growth overall in that region, and are there specific developments, you know, in those more developing markets? I, I know you guys highlighted maybe India being one area of strength, but what what are you thinking in terms of overall growth there geographically? Yeah, so I, I think we're we're excited about the the opportunity for private credit in Asia. Um, you know, going back to what I said before, you know, the U.S. was kind of the first start of this. You know, Europe was five or seven years behind that. I think Asia, you know, maybe five to ten years kind of behind Europe. You've really been dominated by kind of the the banking system kind of being the lender there. But I think you're going to see that you know continue to decline over time. I think you're seeing more private equity dollars go into those regions. Um, you know, I think that'll create, you know, additional, you know, pipeline opportunities there. You know, I think we've got a unique angle in Asia, right? We as a firm have been involved in the private equity business for a long time there. Um, you know, so we've got 11 offices, we've got a footprint, you know, we actually sent over, um, you know, a partner from who was on our U.S. team who actually was in the Asia uh, sort of region, you know, prior at KKR on the private equity side. But, you know, Usually you're forced to, if you're doing this, to send somebody over and almost start anew, right? Including kind of finding office space, where you're going to sort of play. But, you know, the nature and the culture of this firm is quite collaborative. You know, having that office footprint, I think, is is a real, um, you know, value add. I think that market is kind of very local. You know, I think what you're really referring to, Sam, a lot is in, this, in the direct lending space, Right. I think a lot of that has probably been Australia and India, if you kind of pick, you know, two sort of particular spots. But, um, you know, I do think it's kind of early days there. But, you know, a lot of investors do want to increase their allocation to Asia. This is kind of one way to do that and, and something that we expect is going to scale pretty meaningfully as an opportunity set over the next you know, five to 10 years. Yeah. And then looking at, I guess, the that opportunity set just across sectors, how are you thinking about relative value and, and you know, I think that could be potentially differentiated across the the areas that you guys operated. And how how do you think about um, the the so the skill set there? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think you know, in the larger markets, you know, we generally have a a, a a flagship pool of capital for everything we do, right? So we could have pools of capital that are focused on direct lending, pools of capital that are focused on subordinated debt, you know, pools of capital that are focused on we'll call it asset-based finance, right? Um, you know, I think we've taken a different tact in inside of Asia. We've generally set it up as kind of one, you know, private credit fund, kind of more go anywhere that can kind of play across, you know, those things, you know, plus play across the capital solutions space. Um, so then we have the ability to look at kind of risk-adjusted returns by the different types of deals that we're kind of doing there. I think that's important there because I don't think the market's developed enough yet to, to be, kind of siloed or sort of individualistic, right? But having the ability to be really across anything that's privately originated and privately negotiated, you know, will allow us to think about risk adjusted returns and relative value in that market. And then obviously you can have the country overlays as well. So I want to stay mindful of time here, but I do have a couple of last ones for you. Uh, I guess, you know, first and foremost, what do you think is the most common misunderstanding about private credit as an asset class? You know, almost go back to the first question you asked is, you know, most people say private credit, they think that means direct lending only, right? I, I really do think it's much, much broader than that. 
um, you know, up and down the capital structure, really thinking about everything kind of privately originated and privately negotiated, right? So to, to me, that's that's kind of the big one. Um, you know, I, I think people are getting a, a deeper understanding of that as we sort of go along, but I think that'll still continue to be an education process for, you know, a bunch of folks over the next couple of years. Yeah, and I think maybe what we'll do is we'll get you a coffee mug that says privately originated and privately negotiated, Maybe a dozen of them, and you can hand them out. But uh, yeah. I guess <laughs> I harp on that one a lot to try to make the point across. But you're right. Uh, so I guess last one for you. I mean, we are towards year end. We're moving into New Year's. So, is there any resolution that you would make on behalf of the market in terms of something you'd like to see achieved in 2024? You know, I, 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 there's probably two things in my mind, right? Um, you know, I, I do think it's important uh, that the the market remains kind of vigilant on ensuring there's kind of no assets or the liability mismatches, right? I, I think that is is where people kind of do get in trouble, right? Um, you know, I, I I think the you know the market has either done a really good job by you know having these kind of longer dated funds that really don't have a redemption concept if there is a redemption concept it's kind of capped at you know 5% a quarter nothing like a normal kind of hedge funds you know sort of style piece so i think remaining kind of vigilant there um you know will be important and i think the i think the lenders out there you know do need to keep in mind like we're going to when we're underwriting these loans um you know, we're going to hold these loans, you know, again, you know, in, until we get paid back or mature. So I think discipline and structure matters. And, you know, I, I don't expect us to have kind of, you know, day to day, you know, high liquidity in these assets. I think the market's done a really good job. I think there's a lot of really talented, you know, private credit managers out there. And, you know, I'm, I'm expecting that to continue. But, you know, that's um, that would be the second point. Excellent. So, well, Dan, you know, it, it really has uh, been a pleasure. Really appreciate you making the time, uh, sharing your knowledge, sharing your thoughts. To our listeners, thank you once again. And on behalf of Sam and myself, happy holidays to all of you. May you have a safe and prosperous new year. This has been Credit Crunch. Credit Crunch.